Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and happy to bring you a bonus episode that will help shape your thinking on nonprofit leadership. I'm delighted to bring you this conversation with Michael Marsicano, who is the president and CEO of the Foundation for the Carolinas which is one of the largest community foundations in the United States. He's passionate about bringing communities together and maximizing philanthropy to improve all aspects of society. And like nonprofit leaders all over the world, he was faced with an unprecedented challenge and opportunity with the arrival of COVID-19. He and his team mobilized and created a COVID-19 response fund, one of the largest efforts anywhere in the country. And while the fund itself is a fascinating study in community partnerships and the power of philanthropy, Michael and I discuss much more. What are the lessons nonprofit leaders should be taking from this current crisis, and how can they best leverage their teams, their boards, and their donors? And what does this mean for the nonprofit sector after we get through this initial relief effort? What does this mean for the arts and culture organizations that are not on the front line but are hurting nonetheless? These are just a few of the topics we discussed, and Michael has great words of wisdom and actionable takeaways in each case. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode number 32. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources, links, and books, as well as more information on Michael and the great work he is doing through the Foundation for the Carolinas. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Marsicano. Michael, thank you for joining me on the path. Pat, I'm so pleased to be with you this afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to have the conversation. Well, you were already a very busy leader before this current situation uh, engulfed all of us. And so I'm grateful for your time. And there are a lot of leadership lessons here, as we've talked about before hitting record. I wonder if you might share as this whole drama of COVID-19 began to descend on all of us, what was it like for you personally as a leader of a significant community foundation? Well, Patton, certainly it's a, it's a learning lesson for all of us. I guess my um, most important lesson has been related to the difference in how time is being used in my work. So, for example, um, I have always promoted that CEOs of nonprofits, to the extent that they can be there, they need to be living in the future. And most CEOs of nonprofits, I think, unfortunately, are so consumed with the day-to-day work that they're not living in the future. So I structured the foundation such that 75% of my time is really living in the future and working externally, and only 25% of my time is working internally. And usually from that, in the 75% of the time, I'm bringing back my ideas or my external influences to the team that I have the privilege of working with, and I'm more um, working with them on some of these ideas. Well, that's been turned completely upside down. Right. Um, I am working overwhelmingly on internal issues 
and I am getting managed up significantly by my team <laughs> <laughs> as to how we're going about um, not only keeping the foundation running, but also helping uh, the community. So it's been a complete, uh, complete change in the, in the use of my time. And it's had me be more um, sensitive and sympathetic to the nonprofit sector that we serve, because I don't think many CEOs have the luxury of, of having that 75% of the time thinking about the future and be working externally. So I have a much greater appreciation, I think, for a lot of the nonprofits that we make grants to right. and that we're serving. Well, that's well put. And I, of course, love philosophically, you raised that point. And I think leaders should consider their uh, division of labor, so to speak. But you have clearly had to move it back inside, so to speak, to best address all the issues coming at you. Exactly. And they're coming at us very quickly. Talk about the, 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 the national, if not international, network of community foundations. Has there been lots of communication amongst that group as you formulated plans right here in Charlotte? Yes, uh, a patent. It's a very uh, collegial group. Uh, we have two formal groups. One is uh, the larger community foundations that have assets of 500 million and above. And we uh, meet uh, twice a year um, to exchange information and learn from one another. And then I also have a group of about 13 of us that are not based on our, our asset size, but just folks that uh, in the field that we really admire one another. And so we have our own cohort of, of uh, information exchange. And I've drawn on those folks a lot. And to give you some idea of what uh, we're all doing right now, um, first off, uh, interesting note is that of the 800 community foundations that exist in the United States, roughly 800, 96% of the community foundations have closed their facilities and their offices, and they are working uh, remotely. Wow. So that, that's, that's quite interesting because we're very complicated um, organizations functionally at the office to be able to work uh, remotely. So um, that was impressive to me to learn. Uh, most all of us, uh, I think the flattest figure I saw was 98% of the community foundations are making grants to help in the COVID-19 um, crisis. Uh, many of those are coming from fund holders that they serve um, uh, at the community foundation. Right. And, then, and then of 82%, which I found this to be quite astounding, have opened up some kind of um, collaborative, responsive fund, bringing donors together to collectively give in a strategic way to be able to deploy philanthropic resources where they're most needed during this time. And we have been uh, one of those that has done that. Yeah, that. incredibly nimble, I would say, given all the moving parts you had to assemble. We'll talk about that, what, what you have done here locally. And of course, for you locally, I realize is a regional effort. It's not just Charlotte. That's correct. Uh, Foundation for the Carolinas is in some ways misnamed because uh, we don't serve the full two states of the Carolinas. Uh, we serve the 13 county uh, area that is really metropolitan Charlotte. Uh, but for those of, of your local listeners to uh, say to Rock Hill, South Carolina or Salisbury, North Carolina, that we're the greater community foundation 
the Greater Charlotte Community Foundation, that just wouldn't sit so well. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, we sit on the border, as Charlotte does, and so we serve two states, uh, 13 counties in those two states, and so we're a foundation for the Carolinas. But we are working in those counties uh, and actually have some national programs as well that perhaps we'll talk about later. But mostly, community foundations are place-based, and so we're the greater Charlotte uh, uh, region. And the significant fund that uh, was opened first was for Mecklenburg County. And this came about uh, before we were all sheltering in place when we began to see the huge decline uh, in revenue uh, resources for the nonprofit community. And we had this conversation with Laura Clark at the United Way of Central Carolinas. And uh, we decided, uh, it was a Friday, before we were all completely sheltering in place, that we really needed to create a response fund. Nice. And we decided to do it in partnership between the foundation and the United Way. And then Saturday morning, when I was at home, I got a phone call from a major philanthropist who had the same idea and was inquiring as to how he might set up a response fund. And we said, these are great mind experiences. Here's, <laughs> right. here's what we're talking about doing. And he decided, this was Doug Lebda at Lending Tree, decided to join forces with us and the, the fund was off and running. So what is the, the, why is the fund so important now, I think is, a, is, a, is really important for your listeners to, I think, understand. And, and I, I would say there are three, three things. First, yes, there's all the reduced revenues that nonprofits have. At the same time, in the human service industry, with reduced resources, they're, they're seeing a huge increase in demand for their services. Now that they've experienced before, right? in the Great Recession, they've experienced before that. What has happened that is so different this time is because of social distancing and sheltering in place, they are having to work differently. So you're having to work differently when your resources are down and the demands on you are greater. And that trio of challenges has become huge. For instance, a, a food bank can't deliver food without handing the food from one person to another. Exactly. And yet we're social distancing. So you have to completely rethink um, uh, how you do your business at a time that you have uh, uh, greater demands on you. And so the fund was created to try to address those three things, help nonprofits with uh, uh, resources to, uh, to take care of the reduced resource challenge. Yep. Uh, it is particularly targeted for those nonprofits who are seeing greater demand. And right now that is in the human service area. And then we're also funding things of, how to, uh, of helping groups to do things differently. For example, Many nonprofits didn't even have the laptop capacity to have all their staff work from home with a laptop at each home. Good point. So those three things are what we're looking for to fund, not laptops specifically, but the idea of how do you do things differently when you can't work in your normal environment? That's yeah, uh, high intensity needs for sure. And you, you mentioned, of course, Doug Lebda's generosity from his company and individual perspective. Have you found other folks rally with you 
what, what has been the response as you created this fund and encouraged others to join? The response has been heartwarmingly generous. Uh, it, it began with, with Mr. Lebda, the city of Charlotte, decided to match his gift with a million dollars. Uh, the very next day, Truist Corporation uh, gave a million dollars and the county uh, decided that they had a larger population than the city, so they did a per capita amount and they put 1.3 million in it. And then it just went from there, the Spangler Foundation, Bank of America, and so forth and so on. But because of our online donation portal, um, we've also had you know, $10 gifts. And nice. so it's been a community-wide wide effort. And we're now up to 17 million, which is of the 82% of the community foundations that have done these funds, uh, the 17 million puts us in the larger organization. Um, this past weekend, I had 12 colleagues on a Zoom call just to kind of check in with one another. And Seattle's is up to 20. So now I feel I'm in competition with Seattle. <laughs> That's <laughs> a competition. 17? Yeah. <laughs> That's a competition we all win, though, right? If there's that kind of generosity going on across exactly. the country. Exactly. Exactly. Of course, I did point out to them that Seattle is the home base of the Gates Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do have some advantages up in the Northwest, don't they? They, they do. Uh, they do. Talk about the, the relationship. You have obviously wonderfully generous but independent fund holders with the Foundation of the Carolinas. How have they responded and, and what has been the kind of communication amongst that group? Yes, so some of the 17 million that um, have that donors have placed in the COVID-19 response fund that we've organized with United Way comes from our donor uh, fund holders. We have about 3,000 different fund holders at the foundation. They're nonprofit fund holders, corporate and family fund holders. So it's been the corporate and family fund holders who have put money into the response fund, in addition to donors who don't have funds or who have private foundations um, uh, have, have joined us. But then we are also serving through our relationship managers on our team at the foundation with these fund holders to help them make grants, not only to the response fund, but to, but to specific charities that they want to help during this time. Nice. And so millions of dollars more have poured out and we've made about another 175 grants from those fund holders, not to the response fund, but directly to, to the nonprofits. And this is a very important point. Uh, donors need across the country need to continue to give what they do annually to the organizations they give it to. Great point. And then on top of that, we ask them to be even more generous by helping out with some of the critical needs. But if you start to take away the money that traditionally goes to nonprofits each year and you move it to just the crisis, then you create another crisis in another part of the nonprofit sector. Indeed. And are you seeing some fund holders maybe relaxing their criteria? for the distribution of funds or changing their timelines, obviously, to reflect the immediacy of this issue? In fact, just this morning, I talked to a, a donor fund holder who had decided to allocate all of the grants that they normally give out at the end of the calendar year in December to give to the groups that they have relationships with now in this, in this time of greater need when their resources are down. So that's an example of a timeline. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah. Michael, I also oh, just wanted sorry. to just wanted to say um, 
uh, patent that, you know, I mentioned that the foundation is regional. The COVID-19 response fund that I was speaking to specifically, the 17 million, that's Mecklenburg County alone. We also have uh, COVID-19 response funds that have been created in other counties in our service area that's not even a part of that 17 million. We are a very decentralized regional community foundation. And so it's really up to the leadership of each of those counties to decide to open funds. And so we have had at least four counties now that have opened them and expect more will in the future. Excellent, because you're right. As much as we have our challenges here in Mecklenburg County, as you well know, some of these rural counties are gonna have even more challenges, aren't they, as they deal with issues that this situation creates? Yes, and I think, you know, the way the COVID um, virus is, you know, it's first in urban areas and right. then it's moving into rural areas. So I'm not sure that the more rural communities have yet had the impact that we have in the urban centers. And that's probably right. true across the country. Indeed. Um, well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about something near and dear to your heart, the arts community, the arts and culture that is vibrant. You have contributed to it in so many ways, even before you got to the Foundation for the Carolinas. What do you say to our friends that are running those types of nonprofits? Because um, this is obviously a difficult time for them as well. Yeah, so this is particularly heartbreaking for me. You are right, Pat, you know me well. We're good friends. That I, I have a passion for the arts, and that's where my career actually started. And it is devastating to see what is happening in the arts community, and particularly in the performing arts community, because uh, without the ability to sell ticket sales, Right. And without the ability to have the fundraisers that are usually done in the spring by these uh, cultural institutions, they are taking a huge hit on the resource profile of their budgets. And I, I worry about uh, how long they can survive if the social distancing and the, the rules that are so important now keep up as I think the health officials think that they should there will only right. continue to be a decline in those revenue sources because you can't get together to go to, to go to a concert. So I'm not questioning the public health decision, but I do think we're going to have to figure out what to do about the cultural institutions in a more strategic sense when we get through this. They are allowed to come into the COVID response fund, but they do not have the priority of the individual needs of people who need food and shelter and more basic basic needs. We have funded some of the cultural institutions to bring some of their work uh, today online for people who are sheltering in place to be able nice. to access. Um, but again, the lens of the COVID fund is, is basic need. Could you see kind of advanced or the next stage of these funds, perhaps addressing broader nonprofit networks? No argument about the human you know, services needs right now, but I'm sure you're thinking ahead to three, six months from now when organizations like the arts are going to have a new set of challenges. Well, Patton, this kind of takes us back a bit, if I may go there, to yeah, absolutely. what we did in 2008, which I know you're familiar with. Um, we had a similar um, economic crisis, although this is much more severe. Uh, we would say about Charlotte in its history that we we're pretty much recession resistant. I wouldn't say we were recession proof, but we were recession resistant. Recessions would come and go around the country and we'd be pretty healthy. Well, in, in 2008, we were at the very 
epicenter of the recession because we're a, a very strong banking community. As, as you know, the second largest banking community in the United States would surprise everybody around the country, but, but that is true. And so, so many of our employers are related to that industry and we had double digit unemployment. So we launched a, what was then a critical need response fund, um, similarly to uh, what we have now, and it actually helped us know how to deploy this COVID fund quite quickly because we had the learnings from that uh, fund in, in 2008. Absolutely. But in addition to that fund, though, after we got through the immediate crisis, we put together what was called the Catalyst Fund. And that was to help nonprofit organizations um, be able to retool themselves after the environment uh, of the moment that they were right. in the crisis. And just a couple of examples of what came out of that second fund was a complete restructuring of our library system, which you know is a public-private partnership. Indeed. Um, we funded an entire study of how to restructure the library that was um, that was adopted by both the private parts of the library and the public parts of the library. Uh, organizations merge. There were three organizations, for instance, WISH, the Charlotte Emergency Housing, and Family Promise, which merged into now what is the Charlotte Family Housing, which has become a real leader in moving fragile families into permanent affordable housing. And so there was a secondary fund at that time frame. It did help groups restructure for survival and for the new realities. To tell you the truth, while that's in the back of my mind, we right. are so caught up in the moment. We haven't had a chance to think ahead, but I can't imagine that there's not gonna be the need for some kind of a similar fund like that to be able to help groups get out of the, search, the circumstances that this, uh, this epidemic has created. Indeed. Otherwise, in the arts groups in particular, we're going to lose them. Right. It, it's not just this critical time period of uh, urgency, but it's going to be the second phase. And I wonder if perhaps there's silver lining into some of the investments you've made already of encouraging organizations to have better virtual programming and the ability to adapt to this social distancing? Could you see that be some of the positive results if, if there are such? Well, you know, for me, the glass is always half full. And <laughs> I, I do think that we will have so many lessons that have been learned. I mean, for instance, I don't know how many of your listeners knew about Zoom, but I didn't <laughs> know about Zoom. <laughs> we do so, now. I do now. And it has, it, the, the, the ability to move in that direction or directions like that as an outcome of this, I can see just like at college universities found that both the residential experience is of value, but the online education can be of value as well. Right. We will find in the greater nonprofit sector uh, great learnings from this of how to use technology to enhance our work even when we go back to our, to our offices. So yes, I do see that a lot of changes in behavior might very well um, come from this. I assume you, obviously you've adapted your staff in the communication channels from work from home. Are you seeing that amongst your boards? What's been their reaction to this kind of new style of communication and interaction? 
Well, it's been interesting to learn from my colleagues, and I don't mean my community foundation colleagues, but more my colleagues in Charlotte in the nonprofit sector of how they're working with their boards and staffs. In our circumstance, um, we are in much greater communication than we have ever been. And in part, that's because we organized more frequent meetings through the technology than we normally do when we're in their office together. Uh, so in some ways, I'm more in touch with my, staff, with my staff than I ever have been, especially since we go back to the beginning of, the, of our conversation. Really? I'm not spending quite as much time externally uh, or thinking about the future as I am now. Uh, so we have many more staff meetings um, through Zoom or Teams or these these uh, these uh, instruments yeah, platforms. Right. Thank yeah. you, thank you. That we now have now. Some other nonprofits have been keeping in touch with their boards that way through Zoom or Teams. We elected to go different in a different place with, with our boards. Because we're on the front lines and we're allocating so much money and we're reviewing so many grants and we're helping donors do what they need to, what they need to do, we're also helping nonprofits try to get through the CARES Act. And yes. the, yes. you know, we, as we're helping them with information to get, to get through that. Um, that we have kept the board informed by a weekly update of what we're doing. And so it begins with my kind of overview and then my five direct reports through which all things flow, right. each do three paragraphs from their home desk that I include in the email blast that goes to our, our full board. And frankly, in some ways, while that's not, through an interactive experience like Zoom or Teams, it is, they're now more knowledgeable about what we're doing on a weekly basis that's, that's than, they, great. than they've so ever it's kind of a, It's kind of a template. In other words, you've established kind of a weekly rhythm now to this type of information they're gonna we, get? We have, and it, it, was weekly, it was weekly until this week, and now we've decided to move to every two weeks okay. because I wanted them to feel comfort that Everything was under control. We were moving forward. We were up and running. We were thriving. We were helping carry out our mission. Um, so it was weekly at first. And then we began to think that we were overwhelming them. So we're going to move to two weeks. But we'll keep it at two weeks. Now, we have had some calls on a few items, um, not with the full board, but with selected board members on some of the things that we, we, are, we are facing by a constellation of those board members we thought had the best brain trust on the idea. Right. And we have also had some electronic votes. Uh, now this is an example. I don't know if most non of the full board electronic votes, I don't know if most nonprofits um, have in their bylaws the ability to do electronic voting Great or, or not. Um, but that's maybe another thing that comes out of this. In our case, electronic votes have to be unanimous by our bylaws. So that means a great deal of prep work and making sure the written materials that go out are understood completely um, because electronic votes don't allow a lot of conversation. Other nonprofits are using Zoom 
and they are um, using those platforms to be in touch as, as full boards. Uh, we, we are not doing that at the moment, but that doesn't mean before this crisis ends that we won't. Right. Well, and Michael, the Foundation of the Carolinas, of course, is a wonderful host to countless community events, nonprofit events, meetings, and so forth. I guess, are you having to start to evaluate whether and if they can become virtual activities or how are you and your team approaching, like so many nonprofits, the reality that we may not be able to meet in person for a while? Well, Patton, you know us well. You know that the foundation has an 80,000 square foot building with 20 different boards and conference rooms and event spaces. And the last year, up until the epidemic, we were hosting 600 meetings and events per month. Wow. And that reflects the, I think, the importance of civic engagement and civic leadership and people debating the issues and coming together to to create solutions. Uh, and I'm wrapping my mind when I have my few percentage time points for thinking of the future. <laughs> right. I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, okay, if this is prolonged or if we have a second peak, right. um, how do we engage people in ways that we used to when we're sitting across the table? And so I think that coming out of this, we may also be discovering that there are ways to do that that maybe can even be easier than sitting face to face with one another. Now, I will say, we have thought about this before, but it still had a gathering aspect. For instance, as you know, uh, contiguous to the foundation's headquarters is a 1927 movie palace. Yes, indeed. And we are renovating that. It, it continues to go on. Uh, the construction workers are considered essential. And so it's, it, it's but it's, it's going up. It's, its concept was to be a large civic engagement gathering place that could then have the debates that would happen in that theater broadcast throughout our region, that the technology is being designed so that you can watch it and you can comment and the comments that you make or can can be up on the theater walls and you can vote on subjects uh, electronically and have that vote appear on the walls and very so interactive we're, right very, very interactive. interactive yeah very interactive spending a lot of technology to place in that theater and it was designed in a way to be able to engage people not just face to face but it still was around a gathering of some people so how do we move that conceptual framework if people can't be gathering in groups more than 50 people at a time? I don't have an answer to it, but my, my wheels are moving. Yes. Yes. It's a great point. And I, I'm sure that would be the advice you would give to nonprofit leaders everywhere that you, to the extent you have that percentage, as you described a little bit of percentage to look ahead uh, while you're not putting fires out in the near term. That's, I think the direction we're going to have to go and, let me ask you this, Michael, because uh, as a fundraiser yourself, advice to the fundraisers out there who, who are perhaps tentative in their jobs now to ask for money, how, how do you approach that? Because I'm sure you're having some of the same delicate conversations with folks as well. So when you say tentative, tell me what you're, what you're thinking, Patton. Fundraisers, comments to me are like, gosh, I just, I'm not sure if I should be asking for money now 
under this broader circumstance. And yes, well, I so, think we, I think, I think we have to be very creative. Um, yep. uh, first off, I would say that uh, for those who have uh, great means, um, while they are compromised to some extent, they still have great means. Exactly. And most of them are generous of heart. So I think we should be just as much an advocate for the needs of our communities across the country right now from those folks as we have ever been, if not more. I have never had anybody insulted for asking them for too much money. Yep. So I would encourage people to have the strength of confidence in the mission of your nonprofit to, to talk to people and to encourage them to keep giving. I think where we're more tentative is in folks that don't have uh, a great deal of financial resources. And there's where we may need to think most creatively. And I'll give you one example of a recent conversation I had. Yep. I had a conversation with one donor who is a very modest donor, not a fund holder at the foundation, but just someone who gives in the community um, relatively small amounts of money, but amounts that are significant to the income level of this person. Well, this person happens to be under the annual income level uh, for which you can receive the $1,200 stimulus money. So she has received the $1,200 stimulus money from the federal government, and she has decided to give that $1,200 away. Wow. So here's where, if you're a fundraiser, you can say, well, you know, there's a lot of folks that still have income, particularly in the retirement community, but not a lot of income that I now may be able to talk to because their income really isn't down, but now they have an extra $1,200 they have to decide what to do with, Indeed. which is different from someone who's unemployed and has to have that $1,200 for, um, you know, for survival. So I don't know how many people across the country have thought about you know, a campaign that says, give, this, give the stimulus. Right. Give, give your stimulus money away. And so I'm trying to think about, okay, maybe that's a way to rally our community for that um, population of people, that that $1,200 um, is not the matter of survival. Um, um, but I, I would hesitate to call it a windfall, but a money that is not paying their rent. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example of creativity. Of course, you indeed are sensitive to the reality of donor by donor, but there are, in fact, folks that have uh, the generosity and the willingness, perhaps, to do that if we give an opportunity. That's correct. Um, now, I do think as much as we can be resourceful in knowing the circumstances of an individual, I can understand why fundraisers across the country, and I would be included among that group, who would be tentative in asking somebody for money if they might be someone who has lost their job and we don't know it. Exactly. So that's where you have to be nimble and, and you have to think it through um, and you have to try to know your donor as much as you can. And what we have done, at least with fund holders, 
with our relationship management folks on our team is, is we're constant, constantly in touch with them right now to see how they're doing and how we can help. And giving is such a social um, phenomenon right. that you, you learn in those conversations how people are themselves. And if you're a good listener, which I think all fundraisers should be, and your antenna are high, you can find out whether this is going to be a call that just shows that you're reaching out to uh, make sure that a traditional donor is doing fine and caring about them, or whether or not you keep going and ask them for the gift. Absolutely. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, isn't there? And you're right, yes. we need to utilize our, our listening skills and our intuition as to what's appropriate. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Michael, your advice is fantastic across the board for fundraisers, executive directors. I want to circle back to one as we move to the conclusion here. The, the Catalyst Fund, as an example, a decade or, or so ago, should nonprofit leaders, is this a time not to be premature, but perhaps to consider alliances and partnerships that are out there? Because a lot of them I, I talk to now are like, you know, my strategic plan's pretty much out the window. I, you know, there's just too much uncertainty. But my response is often, well, maybe this is the chance to uh, have some conversation with others serving the same population you do, because maybe that does become a reality down the road. But I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, I, I would say we have um, a, a division of what nonprofits are facing along these lines. You have those nonprofits, which as we started out talking about, uh, high demand for their services, no time to think about the future. Right. But there's a whole series of nonprofits from YMCAs to cultural groups to environmental groups to educational groups who may still be working but are not putting the show on the stage, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> As in the case of a performing arts group or not mounting an exhibition in the case of a, a, of a museum or not able to be working with a donor to conserve land for um, land conservation as an environmental group. These are the groups that I would really encourage to put that external future thinking hat on to see how they come out of this completely rethinking um, how they go about doing things uh, with the new realities. I'm, I don't mean to imply that they're not still running their shops. But right. my bet is that they have more time to be future oriented than those that are on the front lines um, at the food shelter, for instance. Indeed. And so I would really encourage them to try to take this time to think strategically, um, get, a, get a brain trust of, of volunteers and board members that you can be in touch with on some provocative questions or other like institutions in the community or around your, the country to begin to think about doing things differently than we have, we have done before. I think it's harder for those frontline organizations. Uh, and yet those frontline organizations are having to collaborate more. It's right. And it may be that out of those collaborations, some light bulbs go off along the way that can have them think strategically about doing things differently. Yep. Very well put. So you're right. Both sides of that 
uh, division you mentioned, those that are more active immediately still might come out of this with some new opportunity as well as those that perhaps are a little bit in the background, but should take advantage of this time as well. Exactly. Uh, Michael, this has been fantastic. Any final words of wisdom to those nonprofit leaders out there? Uh, you've certainly given them examples throughout our conversation, but any other parting thoughts for the well, nonprofit professional? Well, Patton, I will, I will say this on a very personal note. I worry about those of us that are working so hard in the nonprofit sector. You know, the nonprofit sector really carries the torch for the community. The, the nonprofit sector is the heart of the community. And I worry about the mental health of all of us who are working so hard in compromised circumstances. And this is not just about adapting and adjusting to working at home. We're really adjusting to living at work. In other words, we're thinking yep. of ourselves as working at home, but I don't know about everybody else, but my time and distance and day and night, and it's all blurred. It's stressful too, isn't it's, it? It's very stressful. And so I, I need, I'm adjusting to living at work and that's got its challenges. <laughs> I shouldn't be living at work. That's so um, true. Have you found any kind of self-help um, ways to, to let off steam or, or to, to just kind of give yourself some fresh air, so to speak? I, I did do some reading on um, just some articles online uh, about the experience of working from home. Of course, now some people do that all the time as a part of their job. Most people don't. And what I found that has been most helpful is uh, building in breaks and making those breaks longer than they would have been and using particularly right now the nice weather to walk and to get out so a 15 minute break is now a 30 minute break right and get out of the house and walk around the block just clear the head i have found that to be extremely important and what i have learned is that while i'm in meetings all the time at the office or in the community you know, there's a little social time between a meeting or there's walking from my building to a corporate building down the street on, on, in Charlotte. Right. And you have, you have these little breaks that aren't even calendared as breaks, but they're little mental rests. Well, right now I've got my iPad up, my laptop up, my phone on. I've got <laughs> Zoom and conference calls and they go from one to another and everybody's doing, and, and it's just overwhelming. You got to turn so, them off. We got to turn you, them off, don't we? You, Sometimes you got to turn them off, or you got to walk away and get outside. And so, that's just kind of a personal um, point for everybody: that force yourself to give a little distance between each call or each Zoom or each conference call, and and go outside for a little longer than you would if you were at work. Great advice, as I knew you would offer, and of course, you perfectly segued to your parting gift to the audience of you mentioned reading, which is something I am a big fan of and encourage that and ask every guest, give us some recommendations, Michael, what, what's on your shelf, so to speak, that you might offer our friends well, that are listening. Of course I knew this was coming cause this is your, this is your, um, <laughs> you know, this is, this is like, um, 
Jane Pauley on, 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 on Sunday mornings at the end, she says our trumpet will sound or what, you know. <laughs> I'm predictable. At least I'm a little predictable here, right? <laughs> no, but it is, a, it is a, a lovely gift you give to all of us who listen. Um, so I actually, um, so I was prepared for that question. So I have uh, three and they're very different. Um, one of the most beautifully written, it's almost poetry, but it's a novel, it's fiction that I think I've ever read that I would encourage people to read when you want to get away from work. And that's a book called All the Light You Cannot See. All the Excellent. Light You Cannot See. It's just a beautifully written book. Another one I would say is that's, uh, that I'm in the middle of right now is called Sapiens. And particularly for nonprofit people it, or anybody, but it's, it's, a, it's a delve into what makes human society tick, why we are the way we are, how we're held together, and when we're not held together, why are we not held together? And it's a fascinating discovery about human nature. So that's just interesting. Love, it's, love it's, that. Yeah, it's, love that. It's an intel. I mean, it's into. It's not your easy. It's read. not light reading, is it? It's, no. it's, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> you gotta be ready to read. You gotta be ready to read. Now, the one that um, professionally I always hold, hold up, and, I, and it's not a recent book. Uh, it was first published in 2004. But of all the books I've read uh, that have helped me most uh, in my professional career, and in 2017, uh, an extended uh, version of it was, was uh, published, was a book uh, called, is a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy. And Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, you've probably heard of it, Patton. And, Indeed, but uh, I love as it. I, yep. As I said, you know, it was first written 15 years ago, but it is evergreen. And the fact that he updated, the, the two authors updated in 2017, it, it just really brings everything for me about the thought processes that are necessary to be on the cutting edge and the, and the forefront of whatever nonprofit industry that you're in. The book actually gives examples of nonprofits and of corporations and why they are in what this is what they call this blue ocean where you're out in front of everybody and you're kind of leading the way rather than in the pack. And I, that book I go back to all the time. That's a wonderful recommendation. Uh, thank you for adding to our virtual or our actual libraries. And as you have recommended, we all probably need to unplug a bit and read things like that to get a little bit of relief from this situation we're in right now. Well, Pat, and I want to say thank you to you because, you know, your um, track record in, in doing these uh, podcasts is, is quite extensive and they're received so well. And I'm just honored uh, that you asked me to do this one. Well, Michael, the feeling is mutual. Thank you very much for your time and advice uh, for joining me on the path. And, and perhaps we can do this again someday. I look forward to it. Take Thank care. You. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that you can share with your team, your board, and perhaps even your funders. Don't forget the show notes available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find more about the COVID-19 response fund that Michael and I discussed, as well as that trio of book recommendations Michael suggested. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share the episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, consider subscribing by going to the podcast page also at patmcdowell.com 
and you'll see links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. You don't want to miss out our weekly episodes and certainly not bonus episodes like the one today. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.